Good morning, Hillside. Uh, Pastor Matt here, not at the Sunnyside campus, as it is very clear. Uh, it is blizzardy outside. Uh, snowpocalypse has hit us once again here in Oregon uh, in February, and so we are doing church at home the way we've been doing it really for the last year uh, as COVID-19 really got us good at doing church at home. Well, here we are again, not because of COVID, but because of the snow, doing church at home. I'm Pastor Matt, just in case we haven't met, here at my home office, and I have the honor this morning to bring the Word of God. It's going to be a condensed message as we are uh, doing this 100% online, so we want you to be able to catch the Word of God, dwell on it, and then hang out with your family in this wonderful time of snow. We are currently going through the book of Acts, and we are in our M&M's series, and this is the seventh installment of the M&M's series, and I'm bringing the word this morning from Acts chapter 17. If you're taking notes, uh, the, the M&M for this morning is magnanimity and mania. Yeah, how's that for one? Magnanimity and mania. And I want to open up with a quote. Uh, last time I preached a couple weeks ago, I drew on a Monet and said, hey, you can't uh, uh, upgrade a masterpiece. Well, I'm going to quote an artist for you this morning. And it says this, love is something eternal. The aspect of love may change, but the essence will never change. Love is something eternal. This quote comes from Vincent Van Gogh, and the reason I'm quoting a quote about love is today is February 14th. It's Valentine's Day, so all the couples better make sure you plan for this uh, because the snow came. You can't run to Fred Meyers at 5 in the morning to grab those roses, so make sure you planned ahead. Uh, but yeah, it's Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the eternal nature of God. John tells us that God is love. So what better day to talk about the eternal nature of God than Valentine's Day? We're talking all about his love and we're talking about the the, the passion that, that, that he has for us and, and, and just this overwhelming sense of love that God has for us. And we're going to spend some time looking at the life of St. Valentine and how his love for the gospel and his love for the lost mirrors that of Paul, of Silas, and of this crew that we're going to see in Acts chapter 17 as Paul and his entourage are traveling all across Macedonia and down into Greece sharing with love and with passion this magnanimity and this mania, love Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. Let's read, picking up in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphilios and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, and as was his custom, uh, went into them and was there with them for three Sabbaths. And he reasoned with them, from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this, Jesus, whom I preach, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. A great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. I'm going to jump a couple verses because we're going to paraphrase this in just a moment. But jumping down to verse 10, it says this, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Jump over to verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to many idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily, the Agora. This is where he would go to the marketplace where he would minister daily to those who happened to be there. Paul said, you know what? Athens is a big city. I'm going to talk to anyone who will hear. And we're going to learn this morning all about Paul's love and his passion for his Savior and what that did for his ministry as we look at the magnanimity of it all and the mania that's connected with it all. But first we're going to pray. Then we're going to talk about St. Valentine, and then we're hitting the text. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much. God, thank you that we have the availability, even though we aren't able to be in person because of a natural phenomenon, snow, uh, God, we are able to study your word here at home. So God, we just thank you. We praise you. God, I pray that in these next couple moments as we study your word, God, that you would speak through, that our hearts would be enriched, and God, you would just develop within us a passion and a love for your word a passion and a love for the lost, God, and uh, really a mania that would well up inside of us so that we would be evangelistic doing this for the one. God, we thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So before we hit Acts chapter 17, let's talk about St. Valentine. St. Valentine was a Christian and he was a priest during the third century of the Roman Empire. And at the time there was a, a great persecution against the church. And one of the things that uh, the, the, the Roman Empire uh, was instilling in its citizens is wars were starting to be lost. This is towards the end of the Roman Empire. And the emperor at the time thought, you know, the reason why our soldiers are losing is because they all have wives back at home. They don't want to die on the battlefield. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it illegal to have weddings. We're going to make it illegal to perform marriages. We're going to make it illegal for folks to be married so that these men will be way better fighters. They'll be willing to lay down their lives because they have nothing left to lose. Now, uh, this is a pretty stupid idea. Uh, I think that they would fight harder if they were defending the land that their wife and their family lived in. But that's a different story for philosophy and all that kind of stuff. But there was a guy by the name of Valentinius, and he was a priest, and he said, uh-uh, uh-uh. These people, they need to know the beauty of marriage, because Paul, Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And so Valentinius, he was going behind the scenes, and he was giving weddings, he was doing all sorts of things, helping the church and helping Roman citizens fall in love with one another so that they could fall in love with Christ. It was a magnanimous thing. There was a lot of mania all around it. So much so that, well, the Roman leaders in the town Valentinius was in were like, you know what, we're going to set this guy up. And they set up a fake marriage. And uh, Valentinius came to preside. They arrested him. They threw him in jail. And while he was in jail, waiting to be killed for his faith, uh, he met the jailer, and then he met the jailer's daughter, and the jailer's daughter happened to be blind. 
And she would go and she'd sit and she'd listen to Valentinius talk about the gospel, talk about the love of God. And she turned her heart to Valentinius, as did the jailer. And on the day he went to go die, he prays for her. She receives her sight. It's a great story. And then he's taken away before she's able to thank him. But she finds in the cell a note where he professes Jesus' love for her the good news of the gospel, his excitement that she has given her life to Jesus, and he confesses his love for her, and he signs it from your Valentine. That's why we have Valentine's Day today, as a result of Valentinius doing the work of the gospel, sharing the love of Jesus with magnanimity and mania, and he was put to death, martyred on February 14th. So, there you go. And his love and his life and his passion for the gospel mirrors so much what we see of Paul in all the book of Acts, but totally here in Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at three different accounts. Acts 17, we see Paul and his ministry entourage. They are traveling all throughout Macedonia. Last week when we were in Acts chapter 16, we see that they go and they travel from uh Thrace, to, to, to Samothrace, to, to Macedonia, where they go to Philippi, and from Philippi they're going to travel to Thessalonica. And it just so happens that Thessalonica is the capital of all of Macedonia. I mean, Thessalonica is an important city. It is so important so much that the Roman road, the main road that spans from all the way in Iberia, which is modern-day Spain to the west, all the way to Parthia, which is modern-day Iran in the east, that road goes right through Thessalonica. And it's interesting that we see Paul, he passes through Amphilios and through Apollina, and he doesn't start a church. He doesn't hang out in the synagogues. He doesn't do ministry in these little suburbs. He goes to the big city, and he's going to do something amazing there in this big, important city of Thessalonica. It says here that he reasoned with them for three weeks in the synagogue, and many converted. We would know if we flipped over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that Paul commends them and says, It is from you, sounding forth the Greek word literally that means booming echoes. The word sounded forth from Thessalonica to all of Macedonia, for you are an example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, Paul goes to the large city because he knows from this large city there will be great influence that is able to be had. And he reasons with the Jews, and many of them were persuaded, even some of the devout Greeks. There's Jews here, but there's also the Gentiles. And God does an amazing work through Paul, as Paul is, is passionate with the love of the gospel, bringing it to these people. But there were also those who didn't believe. And we have the house of Jason and, and, and some things that occur in verses 5 through 9. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, but I would highly recommend you grab a highlighter and your old King James Bible and highlight this verse. Because here in the New King James it says, evil men. But in the old King James, it says, lewd men of the baser sort doesn't get much more sinister or evil than that. Lewd men of the baser sort are rallied together by the Jews, and they, they put together a mob in the marketplace, gathering this mob from all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, Thessalonica, there's about 200,000 people in this capital of Macedonia, and there is now a stir. There is a 
mania, you might say, surrounding the gospel that Paul is preaching. And the testimony that they brought, this is so great, the testimony that these people who are coming against Paul bring is, these are the ones who have turned the world upside down. Can I get a hallelujah? Praise God. They turned the world upside down. They didn't flip it uh, to, to, to some new thing. They restored it to what God had intended it to be. They turn the world upside down because of their passion for the gospel. Do you turn the world upside down with your passion and your love for the gospel? We should. We should break cultural norms. We should come against all these things and flip the world on its head. This is the testimony. And Paul even says, be of good testimony so that those who wish to accuse you have nothing bad to say about you. This is that. They, they're flipping the world upside down. Paul and his crew. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You were supposed to say, Curios Caesar, which literally means Caesar is Lord, and Jews uh, who had converted to Christianity, Gentiles who had converted to Christianity every year when they were to say, uh, Curios Caesar, uh, they would say, no, 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 we follow Christus, Curios Christus, Jesus is Lord. This troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city, and when they heard these things, so they had taken, uh, and so when they had taken security from Jason uh, and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so they bribed them. They said, hey, uh, if you pay us a lot of money, uh, we'll stop harassing you. So Jason and his crew, they do. And then the very next thing we see, Jason, they hurry Paul out to Berea, go a couple miles down to the next town. They might receive the gospel better. But before we jump over to Berea, our mini M&M of the day, our, our big M&M, the, the important one that we're talking about is the magnanimity and the mania surrounding the gospel that Paul was preaching. But our mini M&Ms is message and methods. Because we're going to see Paul preaches the same message everywhere he goes. But the methods, the methods change a little bit. You see here in Thessalonica, the message was that of the gospel. And the method was to go into the big city, establish it in the synagogue, teach to the Jews first, then the Gentile, and see some things grow. And as he goes to Berea, he does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue, he preaches, but in Berea, they were different than they were in Thessalonica. These Bereans, they took it, they said, this is amazing, the scriptures are being unfolded to us, but we want to know more. And so they reasoned in the scriptures. They studied the word of God. If you don't have this verse underlined in your Bible, if you don't have it memorized, you totally should. In that they received the word of God with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether the things that were taught were true. Paul had the opportunity whilst in Berea to do an in-depth, deep Bible school with the Bereans. And teaching them, these are what the scriptures unfold. And now you, using due diligence, search the scriptures out. The message was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love and the passion that God has for you. But the method was not just broadcast the word, but dive in, deep study, and find to see if these things are true. And guess what? Both the Thessalonican approach and the Berean approach are necessary for the church today. We position ourselves in communities to preach to the masses, to share the love of God with the masses, and we also provide ways to study God's word on a deeper, more intensified way. 
And so this is the thing. The magnanimity and the mania, just it defines the message and the methods. From Berea, Paul and his crew, they're going to travel to Athens. They leave Macedonia and they come into Greece. And Athens is an amazing city. It's an ancient city. It's under Roman occupation as a result of what occurred in, in the 140s BC. Uh, but now, the thing is, the Romans, they loved ancient things. It's the reason why they allowed the Jews to still practice Judaism. They loved the history of Athens. And as a result, Athens was a free city within the Roman Empire. So there was free thinking. People could do whatever they want. So many like crazy amazing things are occurring in Athens at this time. And one of the most amazing is what Paul does and when he approaches. You see, he goes and he's going to begin speaking in the synagogue. But he is, his mind is just blown as there are idols everywhere. Some 30,000 different idols all throughout Athens. There is just pagan worship. They have gods to this, gods to that, gods to this that belongs to that. Gods just, you can't even begin to imagine the amount of gods they have. And Paul's like, this is crazy. And and he says, you know what? I, I perceive that these people here in Athens, they are a religious people. And because they're a religious people, I'm going to share with them the truth. And Paul does some amazing things. He begins speaking in the Agora, which is the marketplace where people would gather, and he's preaching to anyone who would hear. And he says, you're, 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 you're religious folk. Hear the truth of the gospel. And there were some that did not like this. And so they rally Paul together, and they bring him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is like the cultural center. This is the political center of Athens. This would be like Capitol Hill. He brings Paul here and says, you know what? It's time for you to give a defense. And Paul here on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, he's surrounded by people, both Stoics and Epicureans, two different Greek schools of philosophy. And this is what it says. Picking up in verse 22, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very pious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Agnosticos. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made by hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all life with breath and all living things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grow for him and find him though he is not far from each of us for in him we live and we move and we have our being as also some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring therefore since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think 
that the divine nature is like gold, silver, or stone, something shaped by the art of man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard this of the resurrection, of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. And however, some of the men who believed him joined him. Among them was Dionysius the Areopagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul begins to share the gospel amidst all of these secular pagans. You have the Stoics, you have the Epicureans. We don't have time this morning to go into the history of the Stoics. We don't have time this morning to go into the history of the Epicureans. The Epicureans founded by Epicurus, the Stoics by Zeno, and, and their competing worldviews, yet both pagan. You have one, uh, well, we're going to do it anyways. The Epicureans, they believed everything was about pleasure, everything was about life, everything was about the here and now. There's nothing after this. There may be a God, but he is distant. He is afar off. The gods of, of the Greek pantheon, they have nothing to do with humanity. What is all about humanity is just love and living for now. Get as much pleasure as you can, because after this, there's nothing. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like modern day hedonists or modern day Americans. There's nothing after this. Love, pleasure. Let's have it now. God, yeah, his hands are off. Like, whatever. Let's just kick it and chill. And Paul's preaching to these Epicureans, but he's also preaching to the Stoics who were like, the gods are so involved. Everything is connected. Don't step on the dirt wrong because you'd be stepping on the gods. Like, they're so... And they give us... They open our minds. They're so... I mean, these were like the hyper-spiritual sensationalists. Like, people who were like, God is everywhere. Feel him. It's great. See him in nature. Yeah. I mean, you've probably ran into these two people in your life before. The Stoics and the Epicureans, they're all around us. And you notice, this is what I love. Paul preaches the unashamed gospel to them. The message does not change. God, who ordained everything. Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. It is time to repent. The gospel doesn't change, but the method... Oh my goodness, the method is completely different. Thessalonica, preaching to the Jews. Synagogue, Christians are formed. Churches are formed. Great, we have the great church of Thessalonica that still stands today. The Bereans, they go, preach in the synagogue. People convert, but they study the scriptures deeply. And we have so many Bible schools today named after Berea. But he gets to Athens. Yeah, he hits the synagogue, but that's not where he catches traction. He goes to the marketplace and he preaches to the Gentiles. And then he goes to the highest place of Gentile, of pagan, of secular authority. He goes to the Areopagus and what does he do? He teaches the gospel, but he doesn't quote any Old Testament scripture. Why? Because they wouldn't have known. But what Paul does is this is so amazing is he quotes Greek and pagan and secular poets. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. This comes from the 7th century BC Greek poet Epimenides. 
And he just, he doesn't have notes, he doesn't have slides, he doesn't have his, his, his handy dandy little Google smartphone where he can pull things up and be like, oh yeah, one of your poets says this. Paul's quoting it off the head. Like this guy, he knows what the pagans thought. The very next bit, also one of your poets has said, for we are also his offspring. He's quoting Herodotus, and some theologians believe also Clenthes, as these two Greek poets and philosophers, both Stoic philosophers from the 4th century, they, they used this phrase, for we are also his offspring. This is crazy. Paul is quoting from memory because he is so saturated, not only in the scriptures, but in what the secular world around him is believing. And he quotes to the Stoics and the Epicureans, their own writers, and says, look, the gospel's interwoven. It'd be like the equivalent of today, maybe a pastor using a uh, Marvel uh, superhero correlation. Or maybe you're out and, you're, and, and you use uh, modern day pop culture to speak to people in the marketplace. You see, sometimes we can get so caught up in our Christianese that we start talking to non-believers about their justification and their sanctification and thou must be holy because the Lord who sits on high, blah, blah, blah. And we start using all these Christianese words and people are like, yep, over my head, I'm on to the next thing. The message doesn't change. Paul does not sacrifice the gospel, but the method in which he delivers it with love and passion is made for these people. You see, many historians, many theologians, and I've heard many pastors say that Paul's missionary journey to Athens was a failure when you compare it to that of Thessalonica, that of Philippi, of Galatia, of, of, of Colossae, of, uh, I mean, he went so many places, Ephesus. It was a failure because we don't have Paul writing a letter to the church that was there. We actually have no record of Paul establishing a church in Athens. And so, if our metric as believers is a large church that's functioning, doing its churchy things, then yes, Paul failed in Athens. But we actually see at the end of Acts chapter 17 that Dionysius, the Areopagate, and Damaris and others with them, they are converted. If your metric is the big church, they fail. But if your metric is, I'm doing this for the one, I'm doing this for the one, then Paul succeeds. And the gospel goes forth and people's hearts and minds are changed. I mean, even the Epicureans and the Stoics themselves, they say, hey, you know what? We want to hear more on this matter. Who knows what occurred in those following days in Athens. But what we do know from the church historian Eusebius writing at the beginning of the fourth century, he says Dionysius the Areopagate, the first convert in Athens, establishes the church in Athens. And as a result, he then begins correspondence with the church that is formed in Corinth, which is the very place Paul goes next. See, Paul didn't have to start the church, he just had to plant the seed. We'll actually see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul says, hey, some of you heard the word from me, some of you heard it from Peter, some of you heard it from Apollos, but at the end of the day, this isn't our church, this is Jesus' church. Paul had a love and a passion for the gospel. It was magnanimous and he had a mania around it. 
and the methods they changed but the message never changed so today the question to you wherever you are at with the same passion and love that paul had the same passion and love that valentinius had is just infinitesimally a small example of the love and the passion that our god has for you and i know it sounds cliche but it's valentine's day so we're doing it god is extending his love to you saying will you be my valentine will you be my love i love you with my whole heart that i sent my one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life god demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners christ died for us will you respond let's pray dear god we thank you so much for your love your everlasting love god no matter where we are as we consider the love you have for us the passion and zeal that you have towards us God, I pray that our hearts would be turned and our hearts would yield to you and that we would fall deeper in love with you. God, we thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Hillside. Enjoy the snow. And we hope to see you again in person next week.